Thank you, Colton. One of my favorite parts of last night, um, as good as the desserts were, as good as the coffee was, as good as the friendships were, at the end of the night, nobody wanted to go home. And so I yelled encore to Colton, and someone else yelled, no, 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 two more songs, two more songs. And I think he was starting to get a chant going. And uh, Dorian, who uh, plays guitar, hopped up, and they sang Sweet Home Alabama. A couple people hopped up to make it all happen. It was a load of fun. If you didn't come, if you weren't able to join us uh, yesterday, I hope that next year when we do it again, you say, okay, I'm going to bring a friend, and we are going to rock this place out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that you have put within us a desire to see Jesus made known and Jesus made famous in South Edmonton. And may we continue to do that, not just on Sunday mornings, but on Saturday nights, Wednesdays at the hockey rink, Tuesdays at book study, and wherever you place us, that we would make you famous. As we continue on through the book of Mark, God, I pray that you would open up our eyes so that we can see you more clearly, open our ears that we might hear you more clearly, and open up our hands that we might respond to glorify you more fully. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I've always enjoyed the story behind the story. Call it what you will, call it um, historical context, call it background, for those of you who enjoy comic book movies, call it the origin story. I like knowing what's going on behind the scenes. For those of you who weren't here last week, we had Jason Ballard from Alpha International, and he was great talking to us about a passage from Mark chapter 2. If you weren't able to join us, please hop online. He did a wonderful job. If you're not familiar with that passage, Mark chapter 2 is when four friends grab their uh, paralyzed friend on a mat and bring him to Jesus. But so many people are present at that house that they can't get in. So they do what any good friends would do. They climb up the side stairs, go up to the roof, dig through the roof, and let their friend down amidst everybody looking at them. I've preached this passage before. I've looked at this passage before. And I don't know why I didn't think about it, but Jason goes, do y'all realize he vandalized that person's house? And everyone's just like, yep, that's what he needed to do. Imagine you ordered a piece of furniture, and they show up, and they come to your front door, and they go, this ain't going to fit. We're going to have to smash your living room window. You're probably not going to sit there and go, mm-hmm, that's what needs to be done. And there's this idea of what's going on behind the scenes that really intrigues me. For those of you probably over the age of 35, maybe the best person at saying what's going on behind the scenes is a man by the name of Paul Harvey. He would walk you through a story for two to three to five minutes, and you would be intrigued, and you'd go, who is it? What is he talking about? Before he broke out his famous line, and now you know the rest of the story. For those of you under the age of 35, over the last decade or so, there have been numerous superhero movies. These origin stories are a little bit more made up, but nonetheless interesting. How did Batman become Batman? How did Iron Man become Iron Man? And for those of you who haven't gone to the theater yet, how does Captain Marvel become Captain Marvel? I like knowing what's going on behind the scenes. One of the key actors in Hollywood right now is a man by the name of Matt Damon, fairly well-known Hollywood actor. He started to gain notoriety in the late 90s with his movie Good Will Hunting. After that, he uh, stepped back a little bit to George Clooney and Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven, and then really hit the big platform with the Bourne Trilogy. 
In the midst of all these blockbuster movies, something happened a few years ago that a fan put together shortly after the release of The Martian. This fan theory started when he recognized of all of Matt Damon's movies, he needs to get rescued time and time again. He actually went through all of Matt Damon's filmography recognizing how many times has the American government gone and rescued Matt Damon? Started with Courage Under Fire, then there was Titan AE and Syriana and Green Zone. And he asked the question, how much money has the American government spent on rescuing Matt Damon? <laughs> Does anybody know the answer? 900 B billion dollars rescuing this man. By no means am I a film buff, so I don't know which of those eight movies is the most popular, but if I were to guess, I would say it's Saving Private Ryan. Mrs. Ryan is about to get the news that every mom who sent kids out to war dreads. Not that one of her children has died, but that three children have died on the battlefield. As a parent of three children myself, I can't imagine how devastating that news would be. This actually rose up to the chief of staff of the American um, government. And I, I don't know if you would call it good news, but he got this glimmer of hope. You see, Mrs. Ryan didn't have three kids. She had four. And his fourth son, Private James Ryan, was missing somewhere in France, but still believed to be alive. The U.S. chief of staff then recruited Captain Miller, who's played by Tom Hanks in the movie, and seven other people to go behind enemy lines and save Pri Private Ryan. Which leads me to the question, when you hear this news, do you think of yourself as someone who needs to be rescued or someone who is going to save their friend? If you have your Bibles or your phones with you, I invite you to open them up to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, our passage is Mark 5, but we're going to Mark 4 because I've got to give you some context. If you don't own a Bible and you would like one, we have Bibles uh, that would, we would gladly give to you as a gift for you this morning at the Connect Desk, which is right down this hallway. If you always want to have a Bible in your pocket, bible.com slash app. Download that and follow me along. If you're brand new to church and you're thinking, man, this is a big book, Dave. How's it work? Uh, the Bible has a table of contents. We're looking for the book of Mark. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. And as we come to Mark chapter 5, we need to know a little bit of the background. We need to know a little bit of the context, what's happening as we head into that passage. It begins with Mark chapter 4, and Jesus is teaching to a large group of people about a parable. A parable is a short allegory or metaphor designed to illustrate or teach a religious principle. This is what it says, Mark chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. Listen, says Jesus, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the, soil was, uh, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. A few weeks ago, as Pastor Mel preached on this passage, he gave this very helpful diagram. He says, the sower is God, the seed is the word of God, and the soil is our hearts. 
After teaching the crowds, Jesus then explains this parable to his disciples and follows it with some more teaching and some more ministering, not only to his disciples, but to a huge crowd. This has been a full day. Imagine going to a conference. Maybe you're at a leadership conference. Maybe work sent you somewhere. Maybe you and your spouse are together at a marriage retreat. You know that after those six or eight hours, you are exhausted. You've taken in all this information. You've networked. You've talked to people. All you want to do is go home and have a nice eight-hour nap. Check out chapter 4, verses 35 to 36. That very day... When evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. It has been an exhausting day ministering to all these crowds. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, let's hop in a boat. Let's go over to the other side of the lake. And we'll do some more work there. And the guys must have been thinking, Jesus, it's a 30-minute boat ride, probably closer to an hour. We don't have time for this. Two weeks ago, Mel talked about what happened on that boat ride. A ferocious storm comes up so much that these seasoned sailors actually think they're going to die. It's a test. Jesus wants to see if the disciples have good soil in their hearts. And the disciples, at this point in time, fail. Take a look at how chapter 4 ends. They were terrified after Jesus calmed the storm and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. For most of us, that would be enough action and adventure for one day. But the day's not over. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Again, think about the day they've just had. Ministering all day, almost dying in the middle of the lake. And then they arrive, and in the middle of the night, this man who's demon-possessed comes running up to them, screaming. The disciples want to have no part of it. If I was there, I'd say, Jesus, it's been a good day. I need some personal time. <laughs> if you're taking notes, the first part of our outline we're going to call enemy territory. The disciples and Jesus have left the safety of all their Jewish friends in Galilee. They've crossed the lake, which in the book of Mark is kind of this verbal cue. We're now crossing a moral boundary. And they're going into the land of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. And I find it interesting that the disciples are never mentioned in this passage. We don't actually know why. I'd imagine they left the boat. I'd imagine they were following Jesus. But we don't know for sure. What we do know is the disciples are never mentioned. They take a back seat into the story of Jesus talking to a man who is demon-possessed. My guess is they don't want to have anything to do with these unclean people. At least when they were ministering to the Jews, they could say to themselves, the Jews are one of us. They believed in one true God. They followed the law and kept the Sabbath. They were circumcised. They were ceremonially clean. They lived in the right way. But these Gentiles, not so much. Ceremonially unclean. Practiced 
pagan rituals, worshipped false gods, had a different way of living life. In short, the disciples are in enemy territory and want to have nothing to do with it. Mark goes out of his way to describe this whole story. Over this sermon series on the book of Mark, we've recognized it's fairly action-packed. Mark is moving this story along really quickly, but he slows down here. He takes 20 verses to unpack this passage. The Gospel of Matthew, only six. Here's what Mark wants us to understand. The first thing we're told about this man is that he's living among the dead, which is socially taboo. According to uh, Numbers 9, verse 6, anyone who comes in contact with a dead body becomes unclean. The way Mark describes this demon-possessed man is closer to how you would describe an animal than an actual human being. We tried to tie him up. He broke the chains. He broke the shackles. All he does is howl through the night. He cuts himself with stones. When Jesus enters the land of the Gerasenes, this demon-possessed man comes screaming before him. This isn't fake. This isn't made up. I remember being in elementary school and we tried to scare each other with ghost stories. And we would say to each other, did you know that if you go into the bathroom and you shut off the light and you say these words ten times in a row, a ghost will appear and chase you out of the house. Did you know that the guy living next door to Michael, the guy who his yard is overgrown, did you know that he has a son that nobody's ever seen before? It's true. We had a sleepover at Michael's house, and at midnight the light came on in the basement and we heard him talking to his kid. We try to scare each other. It's not what's happening here. Everyone who lives in the land knows this man exists. They hear his howling. They can say, man, Uncle George tried to lock this guy up with chains. The guy just beat him up. They know he's out there. He scares them. They've ostracized him. They want to have nothing to do with him. He's unclean. We haven't yet got to the pigs. We'll hear about them in a moment or so. But no other animal is more despicable to the Jew. As God was giving the Israelites laws to follow, he says to them in Leviticus chapter 11, the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean. Add to all that the regions of the Gerasenes as Gentile territory. It's as though they're crossing this moral boundary and they want to have nothing to do with this people. The Apostle Peter himself, in talking about Gentiles, says this in Acts chapter 10, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew even to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. I like how the commentator James Edwards says it. Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit, living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, all in unclean Gentile territory. The disciples want to have nothing to do with this man. They are not mentioned once in this story. It's between Jesus and a man who is demon-possessed. But Jesus goes boldly into the territory. He crosses behind those enemy lines. He searches for those who are captured by war, and he wants to rescue them. If you're sitting here this morning going, I really don't know how I ended up here. Maybe you were invited and you thought, this is the Sunday I want to come. Maybe you were at the coffee house yesterday and go, okay, I'll I'll check out Sunday morning. 
We don't recognize that behind the scenes, God is working with this relentless pursuit, never giving up, continuously coming after, pursuing us with everything he has. See, all around us, the spiritual battle is raging. Battle lines are being drawn, and people are choosing on whose side they are going to be with. Are they going to fight with God, or are they going to fight against God? And the devil doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not Jesus. You don't have to worship him. You can worship money. You can worship your job. You can worship sports. You can worship finances. He doesn't care as long as you don't worship Jesus. But God wants to set the captives free. He wants us to be in awe of his power, his work, his love, the salvation. It's a power struggle, and the enemy has no problem taking hostages. Which leads us to the second part of our outline. Prisoner of war. This is verses 6 to 13. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God, you will not torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. At some point, I think we need to acknowledge how ridiculous this story is. I think most of us in this room can go, you know, that teaching about the soil, I can get behind that. Some soil is really hard and the word of God doesn't penetrate. That makes sense. Some soil is a little bit shallow. The word of God lasts a little time and then gets choked out. That makes sense. The soil is rich and the word of God stays within that and they produce a great crop. That makes sense. We can understand a ferocious storm because most of us have driven from Calgary to Edmonton in a winter storm and go, that makes sense. But a demon-possessed man who screams at the top of his lungs, who Jesus casts demons out of and sends them into the herd of pigs, we go, eh, I don't know. Most of us probably haven't seen a man demon-possessed. Most of us probably haven't seen a herd of livestock go down a steep cliff and drown. If you're a little skeptical, don't worry, it only gets more difficult. In the next passage, Jesus is going to raise a little girl back to life. A woman who has been sick for years, has no hope left in life, has no money left, hears about Jesus, this miracle worker, reaches out and just touches him and is immediately healed. If you're sitting here this morning a little bit skeptical, thinking, wait a second, do these people who I'm sitting with actually believe this? They sure do. I'm not asking you to make a decision today, although if you want to, I'd be happy to talk. But there comes a point where we wrestle with who Jesus is. Is this book more than a thousand pages long, just a well-fabricated lie? Is this book a lie and people all around me actually believe it? Or is this book actually true? 
And if it is, does it have the power through Jesus himself to radically change my life? The scriptures over and over and over again make these outrageous claims. There's 66 books in the Bible, over 40 authors. And they constantly say things that are audacious in nature, that God flooded the world, that God rescued, rescued his people, the Israelites, out of captivity from Egypt by sending 10 plagues. He rescued more than a million people by parting sea and having them go through it. That Jesus Christ isn't like God. He is the actual son of God, born of a virgin, did not lose his divinity, but took on humanity, lived a flawless life, died on the cross, rose three days later. Do people believe that? These 40 authors sure do. Here's what's fascinating. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the very first miracle Jesus does in front of the Jews, do you remember what it is? The hint's on the screen behind me. He casts out a demon. What's the very first thing he does with the Gentiles? Casts out a demon. Well, we're becoming less Christian as a nation. We are becoming more spiritual as a nation. The spiritual battle lines are being drawn. And as I mentioned earlier, the enemy doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not Jesus. So if you decide the claims about Jesus are a little bit too outrageous to believe, there are a myriad of other options to choose from. Each of the world religions is going to have their parameters, their ideas, their thoughts about what to believe. And if that's too restrictive for you, you can always choose your own spirituality. I'm not sure who initially coined the phrase, but they said the number one religion in America isn't Christianity. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. That sounds really smart. Here's what it means. I believe in a God of my own making to make me feel better. The enemy rejoices as long as we don't worship Jesus. But fortunately for us, Jesus comes to set the captives free. He does not negotiate with the enemies, and he's not intimidated by them either. In Jesus, we have a champion who is undefeated, and he remains that way. There is a prisoner of war, and Jesus is saying, I have to go and set him free. It doesn't matter if they're Jew. It doesn't matter if they're Gentile. I am going to show the type of power I have and transform this person's life. If you enjoy war stories, the previous Secretary of Defense for the United States is a man by the name of James Mad Dog Mattis. And if you ha haven't heard of this man before, go home and look him up, because this guy's a baller. Late 70s, he's being interviewed by somebody in charge of the entire American military, and the guy says to him, James, what keeps you up at night? You know what his response is? Nothing. I keep other people up at There we go, I'm back. Jesus is not afraid of anybody. The demons are terrified of him. Notice in verse 7 how this demoniac refers to Jesus as son of the most high God. We are now a quarter of the way through the book of Mark. The disciples haven't said that once, but twice the demons have. Both in chapter 1, verse 24, and here in verse 7, there's an acknowledgement of Jesus' position and authority. This isn't a power struggle. This is no struggle at all. It's an admission of defeat. I was reading this over the past week, and I thought to myself, this is how my kids treat me. I wish I was making this up. 
It's Tuesday night. It's supper time. I'm sitting down. My three-year-old is beside me. My five-year-old's across from him, my wife, and my one-year-old in her high chair. We're eating supper. It's casual. My three-year-old stands up, and he smacks me across the head. (laughs) My wife starts laughing, as you have. I was not. I didn't ask him to eat his veggies. I didn't say no toys at the table. It was casual conversation, and bam! Smoke dad. Got him. I pick him up like a suitcase. I carry him upstairs, and what does he do? He begs. Daddy, no. Daddy, 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 no. Daddy, no. Please, I'll say sorry. You can say sorry. Daddy, I'm sorry. Good. We're going upstairs anyways. This is not a power struggle. I own him. Look at verse 10. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. There's no power struggle. You lost. You've been defeated. It's over. The book of Mark is originally written in Greek and makes it a little bit difficult for us as an English audience to pick up the the nuance here, but there is over and over in this passage, a strong military theme taking place. In verse 9, the demoniac makes the comment, my name is Legion. Legion is a common term for both Greeks and Romans as a defined military unit of 6,000 infantrymen. Jump ahead to verse 11, and you hear about this herd of pigs. The word herd is used to describe a band of military recruits. Verse 13, the idea of giving permission the commander would dismiss the troops to go and enjoy life. Also in verse 13, they rushed down the steep bank. The idea here is to charge into battle. What's the big deal? Why all this language? There's a spiritual battle for your soul, and it is raging all around us. I asked a question at the beginning of the message. Do you more closely associate yourself with the one who's being rescued or the one doing the rescuing. If you found yourself thinking, Dave, I'm lost. I don't know what's next. I don't know I'm going to make my mortgage payments. I don't know I'm going to save my relationship with my wife. I have no hope. I need something to hold on to. Man, do I have good news for you. Jesus has come to set the captives free. Do you see the beauty of this passage? Jesus is entering into enemy territory, meets a man with an unclean spirit among unclean tombs, surrounded by unclean people, working in unclean occupations, and he says, my paraphrase, be clean! I have come to set the captives free. Do you understand how good this news is? Jesus has come to save you. He doesn't care what you've done in the past. He doesn't care what troubles you're in right now. He is saying, I have come to save you. I come to set the captives free. I'm going behind enemy lines. I'm entering enemy territory. And they don't stand a chance. I am setting the captives free. Praise God. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the reason many of us are in this room going, of course I believe these outrageous claims. Of course I believe this audacity that's in this book because Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. He's the one who sets the captives free. Of course he can calm a storm. He created the heavens and the earth. Of course he can cast out demons. He created them. Not he himself. 
It's confusing. We'll talk some other time. Mel will tackle that one. <laughs> this is the Jesus we worship. You want to hear something incredible? This is the reason Jesus crossed the lake. With your Bibles in front of you, your phones open, check out verse 2. They got out of the boat. Now skip down to the end of the passage, verse 18. They got back into the boat. There was no other reason he came. Jesus came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save all of us in this room. If you're feeling lost, and you're thinking, I just want to talk to somebody, I'm going to be sitting right there after the service. I would love to talk to you. Before we move on, about a year ago at this time, I was asked to have Q&A with our grade five and sixes. They asked some wonderfully theologically robust questions. And one of them said, what about the pigs? I had to look that one up. Did you know pigs can swim? True story. I was actually thinking about showing a video of pigs swimming, and then I thought in this moment of pride, what if people think Dave's sermon was okay, but the video of the pigs swimming, fascinating. Here's why that's important. Demons are here to destroy God's creation. The demons were destroying that man. The demons destroyed the pigs. And Jesus has come to set us free enemy territory, prisoner of war, light in the darkness. Listen carefully to these next four verses because there's a surprise here. See if you can pick it up. Verses 14 to 17. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Did you catch it? Total transparency. It took me about three, four, five reads before I saw it myself. The people are more upset that the demoniac has been healed and that the pigs were killed. Here's what the people are saying. We've already dealt with that guy. Thanks a lot, Jesus, for bringing him back. We locked him up. We ostracized him. We put him away. We put him in chains and shackles. He wasn't bothering anybody. We heard some weird howls, whatever. But now we got to deal with him again. Thanks a lot. The pigs are almost an afterthought. Do you have any idea what the death of 2,000 pigs meant for that community? With the drowning of all those pigs, it would have completely polluted their water source. The water would no longer be drinkable for other livestock. They wouldn't be able to use it for cooking. They wouldn't be able to use it for cleaning. It would have taken weeks, if not months, for that to clean up. For those of you who don't spend much time on the Alberta pork report, shame on you. I don't know what you're doing in your spare time. As of February 2019, the average hog was selling for $150 a head, which means this is an economic hit of $300,000. And if you're sitting there going, well, what's the big deal? 
There ain't no insurance in the first century. More than that, it gets worse. It's not like this was one family that was financially devastated. In the first century, farmers worked together. This was probably five or six farmers all working together who had hired a shepherd to take care of their pigs, and all of them were gone. This devastated not only those five or six families, it devastated the community in which meat was a delicacy, and they no longer have any. With all of this in mind, the economic and cultural disaster, the people were more upset that the demoniac has been healed than that the pigs were killed. This isn't a reverent fear of Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. Get out of here, Jesus. But there's one person who expressed great interest. Verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Over the course of this message, I've referenced a couple of Mel's previous sermons. The beginning of chapter 4, Mel talked about the parable of the sower. Two weeks ago, we talked about the disciples in the boat. And the reason I brought that up isn't just for context, as important as that is. But the healing of the demoniac answers the question that has been lingering since the beginning of chapter 4. Who is the good soil? Who are the people that will produce a good crop 30, 60, or 100-fold? After a long day of j- teaching, Jesus gives the disciples a test. We're going to hop in a boat. We're going to sail. Jesus allows that storm to take place to see, are the disciples going to respond the way they should or not? As Mel talked about two weeks ago, the disciples failed that test. Jesus had to come and rescue them. Then arriving among an unclean people with an unclean occupation to an unclean man living among unclean people, who is the good soil? The man who is demon-possessed. His heart isn't hard and reject the gospel. His heart is not shallow and he walks away from the gospel after a week. His heart has not been such in that things of this world come up and choke out the gospel. He is the good soil that produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. Look at the very last verse. All the people are amazed. The disciples need constant attention. The man goes straight out to preach and is commissioned even before the disciples are. He's the Gentile missionary to Gentiles. The disciples need to be reminded of Jesus constantly about his power through natural calamities, through supernatural opponents. While this man demonstrates the quality of a true disciple, one who has faith in Jesus' power and proclaims it fearlessly. And the people were amazed. Jesus has come to set the captives free. Do you notice where Jesus puts him to work? Right where he is. Sometimes there's this fear, if I commit myself to Jesus, he's going to send me to another country. Maybe, but I doubt it. Going back to that opening question, 
Do you see yourself as the one who is lost or the one on the rescue mission? If you see yourself as someone who wants to go out and rescue people, Jesus isn't sending you to a faraway country, although he might. He is sending you where you already are. He is sending you to be light in the darkness at work, to be light in the darkness to your family, to be light in the darkness in your neighborhood. He is sending you out to the hockey rink, to the soccer dressing rooms. He's sending you out to book clubs, to parent nights, to coffee shops, to drama classes. He's sending you out to the golf course. He's sending you out to PTA meetings. He's saying, wherever you are, be my light. In the previous environment I was a part of, there was a couple in our church who thought, you know what, we're trying to get involved in the community. We're going to be part of the local senior center. And they slowly started inviting people from our church to join them at the senior center. And they slowly invited people from the senior center to join us at church. It took about a year. But after a year, our church was heavily involved with the senior center, and the senior center was heavily involved at our church. And people started coming to faith. The reason we put on the coffee house yesterday, we're saying to Southwest Edmonton, we know where you're at. We know you enjoy great coffee. We know you want nice desserts. We know you want to sit back and have a date night. Come on in. But it's also our job to go out and invite them. Let us be light in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of Mark. Thank you for the joy that it is to listen to Mel preach, to have the opportunity myself this morning. And God, I ask that you would use us in powerful ways to be light in the darkness. Please forgive us when we have not had the boldness and courage we should. And fill us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to share the good news and to see South Edmonton transformed for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.